0: Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. David Fincher is the dude whom, of all of his movies we watched, I don't know how that works, we watched all his movies. Love uh, movies. Levi, initial thoughts on this run of David Fincher's films? I think
1: this was our, for me, the most fun with direct so far.
0: I think this was a total trip. How crazy is that? Right? It's I mean, so good. I think that this was a bigger surprise. I think that Tarantino was more fun, because mm-hmm. Tarantino movies are just. Easy to chill
1: out. They're rip-roaring. I mean, it's they're all It's all character, a lot of pizzazz. D-
0: David Fincher's going to make you feel bad about yourself and all the decisions you've made in your life. Mm-hmm. He's going to get you real moody. He's going to take oh, yeah. up a lot of your time. <laughs> but it, easily the most surprising. Easily the most surprising. And... I started this thinking David Fincher is a pretty good director. I finished this run thinking David Fincher is one of the greatest living directors. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think it's, I want, we, you know, we've talked
1: a little bit before trying to rank against the other directors. I think that's not the conversation. It's just, he is so good. He is yeah. so, uh, Talented, he is very precise in Mm -hmm. how he works. You hear a lot about how particular he is in shooting, and it showed in every movie except for Aliens Three.
0: Yeah, well, okay, we just got to get to it then because we have a great forum post on this. Yep, Um, this forum post comes comes to us from Tebster, and Tebster has been following us. Since episode one, but I think this is the first time that tebster has communicated and God damn it tebster good on you for a uh, first launch here you definitely did not alien three this forum post if you know what I mean <laughs> uh, so he says uh, I, lo- I love this it's it's good analysis and it's it's right for discussion so here we go I'd like to say something that will sound strange but please go with me says tebster Fincher's experience on Alien 3 seemed to set the psychological standard for what we have gotten from his work since. In regard to, point one: having the fear of making another bad movie. Now, I don't think Alien 3 is awful. I can't agree with you there, Tempster. <laughs> but it's a good but it's not a good film. It's certainly not the kind of film we would want to, to start of our career start off our career making. Uh, After reading through a fair few transcribed interviews with Fincher, it seemed to me that he thought all of his dreams of being a movie director were over and that the thing he thought would jumpstart his career actually killed it. And that I I can't believe that Alien 3 was his first movie, honestly. But here's the second point here. He says his second point is that Fincher is extremely cynical about life. (laughs) Yep. And here's what Tubster says. Uh, Throughout all of his works, there are notes of existential existential nihilism. Being crushed and punished around and bullied by Fox Studios would have made a lesser man give up, which Fincher almost did, but Fincher kept going with a wondered mentality that seemed to scream because of how bad life is. If there is a God, he must hate you. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't believe there is one because of how bad life is. So therefore, life is meaningless. Almost all of his work seems to characterize these traits on some level. The skeptic, the free thinker, the rogue. He is known for being a hard director to give notes to, and he doesn't take on a lot of what is said. I remember reading an interview where he said that because his name is on the poster, he does give a fuck, or he doesn't give a fuck what producers want. There's a little typo there. He does usually trust them because if the movie sucks, they won't get blamed. He will. He is a first believer of directors getting too much praise when a movie is good and too much blame when it is bad. I am completely on board with this philosophy. I think that uh, Fincher is the epitome of if at first you don't succeed try try again and it's hard to do that in this business but he did it and he proved it yeah he's, it was
1: not it wasn't try 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 it was try one more time and crush it <laughs> and then continue to crush it for yeah. the rest of your filmography i can't think i there wasn't a a bad movie in the bunch once we got rolling i mean it was Dude, really impressive that's How hard do you, to do how do you
0: go from alien three to seven like very quickly seven is one of the definitive movies of the 90s the 90s is not peppered with excellent filmmaking right i mean nobody thinks of the 90s as an excellent decade although it does give us reservoir dogs it gives us pulp fiction uh it gives us uh you know dances with wolves uh the you know, Water Waterworld was the 90s. The English patient? The Waterworld? What are you <laughs> doing to me? What are you doing to my life? All right. But Seven, you. the amazing thing about Seven is that it holds the fuck up. It is 20 years old. And that movie is as fresh today as it was 20 years ago. It's an amazing film in so many ways because it just holds up so well. I mean, I was a child of the 90s. But even in the '90s, when you watched movies from even the '80s or the '70s, you could tell they were dated. They were tinged with the with their era. And Seven is a timeless film. Seven's not just timeless; it's in your head
1: because you remember we had this conversation. People yeah. remember scenes that don't exist in that mm-hmm. movie. That mm-hmm. was how wild Fincher was in his ability to tell you a story that you're filling. People look at Star Wars and immediate they go write their own fan fiction. Often, other parts of Star Wars. David Fincher has you writing gruesome <laughs> murders yeah. in the middle of his own
0: film. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing too. Is that Fincher really flies under the radar? Because not only does he give us Seven in the nineties, he also gives us Fight Club. Those are two of the most definitive films of the nineties, in my opinion, mm-hmm. with lasting, lasting chops. And then, you know, he just sneaks around a little bit. He just does, you know, Curious Gates of Benjamin Button. He does the game. He does Panic Room. Although Panic Room is a, is still a stalwart movie. It still is on TNT. Like, we know drama. Panic Room <laughs> is drama. Um, you know, floats around. Does uh, the, Then then comes comes at it with Zodiac, which is totally under the radar movie, in my opinion. I feel like not enough people have seen Zodiac. and Not enough people remember it, for sure. But then the social network girl with the dragon tattoo, Gone Girl, like he's just always got his finger on the pulse of what is happening. A lot of people go and see his movies, and I would say 90% of them don't go because it's a David Fincher movie. He's just got his finger on the pulse of society in such a way that he's able to bring in the masses regardless of what his... um, regardless of of his notoriety as a director, which is amazing to me. Like, you don't go to a movie because... I mean, we would. We would go to a movie because David Fincher directed it. But the reason why he is able to garner these large audiences is because he's able to touch on things that are socially relevant in a way that other directors kind of don't do.
1: Yeah, he's really smart about... His material. You're talking about the mm-hmm. timeliness of it. Like yeah. he is picking material that works. I think well, especially when it was created, because it garners so much attention. Gone Girl. He caught. I'm not sure when that book was read, but I know as yeah. soon as the movie was coming up, it felt like everybody was reading the book. Yeah. Uh, so whether he kind of created the wave or rode that wave was really impressive. And uh, the beanie in the forums pointed out. His credit is really due for picking the right screenplays. That is an amazing talent. And we've seen... I've seen other directors who do not write... We've had the advantage of going from a lot of directors who write their own stuff so far. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the first director who really largely adapts work, Fincher is... It's incredible. I think there are a lot of books that I read and I think, Oh, that'd make a great <laughs> film. And then I see when it happens, I go, no, that was a terrible, yeah. never mind. I was wrong. It was something you shouldn't convert. And Fincher, I think just has a knack for knowing what to pull out and then what to put on the screen. Yeah. That in some ways encapsulates it in a time period. And because he is making these movies timeless, there are things, uh, things like fight club as a book. I don't know that it, it certainly didn't have the following that it does until after the after the movie. Oh yeah,
0: no, he made that he made that story what it is. I mean, the cultural zeitgeist that it is because that was that movie happened at a time where like that twist ending was still a big deal. In today's world, nobody gives a fuck about the twist ending. I mean, Gone Girl has a big twist in it, but like even that is doesn't seem to resonate as strongly as those '90s twists. And I think that. Um, I think that The Sixth Sense came out in 2001. But The Sixth Sense is part of that. The Usual Suspects is part of that. And Fight Club is part of that. Like, those are the three big twist movies of that era. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Fight Club, in my estimation, is better than the other two in a lot of ways in terms of the effectiveness of that twist. Um, it but does. That's, the amaz- that's the amazing thing, too. Like, okay, so I'm I'm looking at Box Office Mojo here of David Fincher and for u.s uh yeah that's crazy man for u.s um adjusted gross dollars he's only had three movies that have been less than a hundred million dollars wow when you adjust for ticket price inflation and that's u.s take that's not worldwide take do we know how he does does
1: it have like a separate list i'm just curious how he does internationally you know does this stuff translate okay
0: seven came seven is his highest grossing movie of all time which is amazing to me it grossed 327 million dollars worldwide in 1990 what was that seven when it came out so like that's amazing dude um but yeah seven gone girl it was huge 369 million like and these aren't these aren't Marvel movies. These aren't superhero <laughs> movies. These are just these are rated R movies. Yeah, that's a good. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing, dude. Uh, uh, yeah. Curious case Benjamin Button was three hundred and thirty three million worldwide. The his lowest grossing movie of all time is Zodiac, and that thing didn't even crack a hundred million worldwide, which is crazy to me. He's like. His best his in many regards, in many critics' eyes, in the BBC's eyes, which was the number ten movie of the two thousands, Zodiac is the lowest grossing David Fincher film.
1: David he he's oddly not known and I, I think some of it has to do with his personality yeah. now that I've seen enough uh, interviews with him. But if you went to your group of friends who might who may or may be movie goers but not movie fanatics. Yep. Do you think they could name more than two Fincher films off the top of their head? Probably not.
0: But if you started naming them, they've probably seen most of them.
1: Yeah. And they'd that's, be like, wow, that's a lot of really good movies. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what I did when we talked about Fincher. hmm
0: It's
1: like, yeah. yeah, sure. What's he done? Oh, Fight Club. I like, oh, seven. Oh, I like
0: that. Gonker. Oh, wait. What else yeah. is he? <laughs> the social network. Uh, oh. Yeah. Crushed. So, that's the, that's the amazing thing about Fincher is that I do feel like he is going to go down as one. Like, this guy's in line for a Lifetime Achievement Award for Absolutely. Sure. It's kind of a travesty that the guy doesn't have a, an Oscar, honestly. It, because it's like, you look at a guy like Spielberg. Like, you go to a Spielberg movie because it's a Spielberg movie mm-hmm. in a lot of regard. Uh, Spielberg had, like, his first big flop in a long time this year with the BFG. It was a huge flop uh for spielberg but because i think he might be kind of losing that but in our day man in the 90s you're talking jurassic park you're talking schindler's list you're you're going to a movie because it's a spielberg movie i went and saw terminal in the theater because it's a spielberg movie okay <laughs> and tom hanks with tom hanks um but that's the thing like he's got the notoriety Whereas Fincher, you go to that movie because, god damn it, that looks like a pretty in- intriguing movie. That there's some intrigue. It's usually got a solid cast. It's mm-hmm. based
1: on something somebody you know has read. Yeah, let's go check it out.
0: Let's go check it out. And that's the amazing thing about Fincher, is that, um, you know, he has the, he has a pull. He has his finger on the pulse of society in a way. That we haven't experienced. Like, Tarantino, you go to a Tarantino movie because it's a Tarantino movie. You know? Yeah.
1: You, you and at this saw point, him you'll... on TV. He was running his mouth. And you went, I like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and yeah, Kill, Kill Bill. Bill. And...
0: Yeah. Like, that's that's Tarantino. Like, you're going to go to a Tarantino movie because it's a Tarantino movie. and be- And you know... Whether or not you like a Tarantino movie before you go in. At this point, you have an opinion about Quentin Tarantino, (laughs) and it's polarizing. Nobody's lukewarm on Tarantino. I either love Tarantino, or you're like, I don't really like that guy.
1: Odd enough, I have had to explain to people that Magnificent Seven is not a Quentin Tarantino movie, and it's no way related to Hateful Eight. Other than that, he is referencing that original title in Making Hateful Eight. That's how powerful Quentin Tarantino is. He has subverted an old movie based on an older samurai movie. Wow. And he's managed to overcome a Denzel Washington (laughs) Chris Pratt vehicle.
0: Wow. (laughs) And I'm sure
1: that's affecting the box. I'm sure that people who don't like Tarantino...
0: Hmm. And don't know aren't movies go aren't
1: going to see it because they think it's Tarantino.
0: I really wanted to see that honestly, and it's Anton Fuqua who made Training Day, which I think is cool, and I I love westerns, and you know whatever. It doesn't seem like a super in depth movie, but I want to go see Magnificent. Leave
1: Seven the theater as soon as they ride off into the sunset. Do not. There's like a thirty seconds after that. That was a producer note. I can guarantee it at this point. Someone should be oh, you shot it? for letting it into the film. Yes. You saw it?
0: Yep. Um, but that, that's actually really funny. But that's the thing, right? Is that nobody's going to a David Fincher movie except for you and me mm-hmm. and and our kind listeners to this <laughs> podcast. Because we're going to be butts in seats opening weekend for every Fincher movie going forward. I can guarantee that. Yeah. Uh, a hardcore but- fanatic at this point. Yeah, but nobody's going to be like, oh, yeah, I want, I really want to go see that new David Fincher movie. People are going to be like, oh, yeah, I want to go see that new movie about that best-selling novel that everybody's talking about or about the, uh, the current cultural zeitgeist that's happening. Um, this whole Facebook thing. Yeah, like, he's just got his finger on the pulse of society in a way that a few directors do. And then at the same time, the number one word that comes across when you talk about David Fincher is quality, man. Mm-hmm. It is just so much quality. It is they his movies are impeccable. And there's a great thing, uh, I know that Davy Mack posted it on the forums where he's talking about in all of this perfection, he's able to throw in these tiny human moments. Which like Uh, which are all character development, which is exactly what you want. Nothing is wasted in his movies, and that's why he's able to make these movies that are two hours long or two hours plus long, and they clip by because everything is so interesting and you could feel this plot developing, and then at the end of his films, the world is closing in on the main characters and everything is getting more and more claustrophobic and the tension is rising and rising and rising until the release valve is pulled. And the release valve is always pulled, too, in his movies, which I think is interesting. And Um, it's two and a half hours later. You felt like you just started the movie. Exactly. I mean, the bleakest, even his bleakest movies still have that release. Uh, Seven has an incredibly bleak ending. Um, But we do catch the bad guy, at least. Yeah. Um, You know, I was
1: going through writing down, like, deaths. Did I have any favorite deaths? There aren't. No. A bunch, no. honestly, especially for, you know, a lot of these movies had very distinct villains. There was not mm-hmm. the Avengers versus a thousand <laughs> of the same dude. There was Amy, individual, Kevin Spacey, yep. all by himself. Stellan Skarsgård mm-hmm. had his crazy family, but largely he was leading leading the charge. But the he wasn't Zodiac even the killer,
0: villain. Yeah. <laughs> that's the crazy thing about that movie is he's not even the fucking villain. Not the right. He was. Yeah. It was. He's not even the villain of the story. Like, he's just a random happened to be serial killer that just happens to be thrown in there. Yeah. And then like, he... that's the crazy thing about that movie. It blows my mind. <laughs> well, they got the Zodiac. Out of those four major villains, two die, two live. That's. Well, no, Tyler Durden kind of dies. But that's the thing about that movie too. Like uh Jack <laughs> or Tyler or whatever's the main <laughs> what character's name is him? shoots himself in the face. <laughs> kind of in the mouth really. It, yeah, but it doesn't die. <laughs> like that's the thing about all of these movies. They all they do is just build up and build up and build up this pressure, the pressure, the pressure. Gets so much so high and the tension just builds and then th- it gets released. Like, there's none of these movies that uh, really end on a note that is, like, the bad guy won. Even though the bad guy does win in a lot of them, there's always some kind of breath that you can take at the end. They all um, end like the game. He has yeah. fallen through a
1: beautiful a beautiful d- glass dome yep. onto this cushion, which deflates and everybody's there. Yep. But it feels weird because he just Holy tried shit. to commit suicide, dude. I So think I need... what? Oh my god! What happened? You don't know what to do with that necessarily. Like you're happy that it's over. The game is yeah.
0: hopefully over. Okay, my I think my mind just might have just gotten blown. That's I think my I think my mind has just been blown <laughs> because I we're we're gonna get to our top ten list. Game mm-hmm. is pretty low on mine.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: But. I think that the game might be the metaphor for David Fincher's film career. Oh. And his philosophy as a filmmaker. It might be his most overt film. I mean, we're 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 t- basically tossing out Alien 3 whenever we talk about this yep. shit. But The Game might be his most overt, over the top, goofy. I mean, I I I said it in the podcast. It's a goofy film. It's pretty goofy. Yeah. A lot of suspension of disbelief required but that might just be his his uh his writing this is his this is his this is his manual this is his almanac for filmmaking is the game like this is my goofy ass movie but you're this is the formula and this is the secret sauce to all of my other films they're just a little bit more more nuanced so if you and I wrote
1: a film if we had the game <laughs> open next to us we could in theory Replicate a David Fincher film. It, if we
0: made a film, it would be terrible. Let's we start with that. Uh, but hopefully, it's Alien Three. That's all I could say. Yeah,
1: hopefully, we could do that. Well, bad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that it really it's honestly blowing my mind, Levi, what you just said about the game, because that's the game is the perfect illustration of a Fincher film it, in a completely overt way. We're gonna ratchet up the tension. Um, we're gonna close things in. The main character is going to commit suicide, but then at the end, it, he he has the soft landing, and then you're able to go home and debate the merits of it. That's another thing about the Fincher movies is that there's going to be a soft landing, and you're gonna be able to go home and debate the merits of it. That is no more personified, in my opinion, than in Gone Girl, because that movie has a soft ending, soft landing that has so much like what the fuck associated with
1: yeah it. there's a lot of i you and i went around a little bit i've gotten around and around with people about the ending of that film why does ben affleck stay with her whether or not that's right. the right decision it's that's one that i think you can tell a lot by a person that's this mm-hmm. is a personality test
0: ask them how they felt about the end of gone girl and i think you can get a lot out of that <laughs> Well, the second time I watched Gone Girl, I actually had a much broader understanding of Ben Affleck's character and his decisions mm-hmm. than I did the first time I watched The first time I watched it, I was like, what the hell, man? Like, why the, why the hell would you stay with him? It's all bullshit. Um, the second time, I understood through the character development of his character and who he is as a character, why he would stay with her. Yeah. it's that's,
1: All of these movies are... This is the first one where I've seen everything, mm-hmm. and... It was all just stellar a second time around. It was yeah. so good. There's so much that can be added by knowing by that soft, by having that soft landing. When you come back mm-hmm. around, now you're looking to under, you're not looking at this. The first time you watch it, it's the soft landing. That's what you felt. Fo- yeah. You're like, wow, he went through that glass ceiling. It was crazy. But. The second time around, you're analyzing the fall. You're watching them make this leap and kind of breaking it down. You're like, okay, why did they jump? Yeah. Because you don't have... It's hard to back up into the movie when you come out of it because you're usually so flat-footed when you get to the end. You're not expecting a soft landing. Movies don't give us that anymore.
0: Fincher gives you the soft landing that allows you to turn around and ask yourself... How do I interpret that? How do you interpret a movie like Seven? Seven, I mean, is just kind of a great crime caper in a lot of ways. Um, but there's something about Seven, and we don't have time to go into it right now, that really is an intrinsically—it's um, an intrinsically sticky movie. Like it just gets you, and it stays with you for a long time. And it's there's certain elements of it, like the what's in the box. What's in the box? Like that is a cultural um, lex—that's that that has entered the cultural lexicon. People say that. Like that is a mm-hmm. movie that is stuck over time. But then you take a movie like Fight Club. Fight Club. You either totally dig with Tyler Durton's spouting, or you realize, or. I'm sorry, I, w- I shouldn't say that you realize what bullshit it is, but you <laughs> interpret it as bullshit. Like, there is, a th- there is a thing of, you watch that movie and you're like, you know what? He's right. He's right about society. He's right about the the uh, emasculation of, of men in this society. He's right about the way that we should interpret, uh, you know, the way that, that culture tells us how to be. Blah, 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 blah. But... If you and and when you're 14, when I was 14 and I watched Fight Club, I was totally on board with that. You know, 15 years later, I'm I have a different view. But that's the thing about Fincher's movies is that he's going to give you the soft landing so that you can stop looking at the movie and you could start looking inward. Yeah, that's what I feel like is so impressive about him. Mm-hmm. It's it
1: was it was it's, I'm glad like 10 hours of this, of talking about this is really <laughs> I would always love to use movies as examples when i'm having design based conversations fincher is hmm. just fed into that so much that it's forcing out other directors in terms of what i reference because he <laughs> has just this great touch where it's it's as he's very specific and it's
0: so so let's let's talk about lasts. that because you are you you are an architect correct and I don't think that when you think of Fincher, you think of architecture. Just on the face of it, Mm -hmm. but having watched, yeah, but having watched all of his movies, and it's also brought up on the forums um, in when people are talking about Fincherisms. This uh, this Babeni person has has called it out um, that architecture. Is definitely a part of Fincher, uh, but Benny says I think he emphasizes houses in almost all of his movies. Even Marla's shitty apartment had personality. So <laughs> when you look at this as an architect, what do you what do you feel, having gone through this uh, Fincher retrospective?
1: He has a really great understanding of space and how it feeds into characters. It sets the scene literally, but there is so much else going on that you know there were a couple instances where we talk about the house being a character fight club that the house out in the middle of nowhere that's falling apart is a character in a lot of ways it is the body that Tyler and Tyler both occupy and is essentially falling apart around them Um you know we get uh in Zodiac we go in the Zodiac's trailer and it's as wicked and disgusting as you would expect you know it's mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it typically feels like you're walking into the mind of the character that it represents and yeah. that can be really true in daily life you know you get yeah it's one of the things that in the profession uh if you if you lean this way Beautiful pictures of architecture are really deceptive. You see really pretty pictures of houses online and in magazines, but nobody lives in those houses that way. Everybody, those are staged. That furniture is brought in, pictures are taken, and then that furniture is taken out, and then people dump their crap everywhere. And that's cool. That's how we live in houses. And there's a lot to read from that, but it's easy to mistake these really, uh, immaculate spaces that we see pictures of and that's yeah. that shows up in Gone Girl we go to uh Neil Patrick Harris's cabin in the woods that is immaculate and that's what he's trying to project onto Amy and then she cuts his throat in that place it totally yeah. you know the whole thing goes out the window um
0: well and and the amazing thing about Fincher and the amazing thing that he does consistently time and time again which other directors don't do is that he allows the audience to become familiar with a place. So, let's think about something that we all love. Let's think about the Millennium Falcon. Okay. Oh yeah. Good. Uh, Millennium Falcon, we know where the cockpit is. We know what the cockpit looks like. Mm-hmm. We know there's like a chill area where you could play hologram chess. We know there's a corridor where you can hide in the floor because there's like smuggler, there's a smuggler's floor. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But, dude, if I, if I asked you to draw me a diagram of the inside of the Millennium Falcon, it'd be a pretty tall task. There would be you know? a lot unaccounted for. There's a lot unaccounted for. If I asked you to draw me a diagram of the house from Panic Room, you could probably do it. I could get if really close, yeah. You could get really close. If I asked you to draw me a diagram of the McMansion from Gone Girl, you could probably get pretty close, too. Or how about like
1: Skarsgård's glass house yep. on top Skargar- of the hill? Again, yep. immaculate place, picture yep. perfect, mm-hmm. hiding a very nasty secret.
0: Hiding very. Even if I ask you to just give me the general vicinity of the house, the soap uh, company house in Fight Club. You know where the kitchen is. You know where the basement is. You know where the upstairs is. You know that there's rooms up there. You know where the that you know there's a bathroom up there with a nasty toilet in it. Uh, you know where the front door comes into the foyer. Uh, you know uh he gives you a sense of place in all of these in all of these movies. If you if I were to ask you to draw me a diagram of the ranch house in the social network that they move out to in Palo Alto, you could do it. He's able to establish this so you're you're familiar with the space. The house in uh House of Cards. Uh you know, you could at least draw me a diagram of the downstairs in the basement. Yeah, you get a really uh, fast sense that
1: the up floor yeah. stairs, downstairs, and the and the mm-hmm. actions that are occurring on each of yeah. those floors. He programs the house and uses that. And there's you talk about the Millennium Falcon. There's a lot of unused space in the Millennium Falcon because it has mm-hmm. other ship things that we never participate <laughs> in. But the yeah. action in, especially Panic Room, makes its way through a lot each of the spaces yeah. really that you know they split yeah. mom and daughter and they come in through the roof and we get the whole
0: pan <laughs> through the house well panic grips is a little bit of a cheater cuz the first scene of yeah. that movie is literally them giving a <laughs> tour of the entire house but it happens again and then the other thing that you were talking about is there are at least two examples of us not seeing the villain yet but seeing their house it happens like you said in Zodiac uh, and it also happens in Fight Club. They go into his house. Um, they go into his apartment. They search his whole apartment before we even meet the character. So not only are we be- getting these spaces that we're familiar with, that we become familiar with, in the same way that we become familiar with a, s- a sitcom set, uh, you know, but he's allow- he's able to use those places in a way that is a little bit more impactful I think because we know exactly where everything is we're familiar with the space we're comfortable with it and then we're almost living that action with the characters which I think is so remarkable uh and it it needs to be something that's called out because I don't think a lot of other directors do that
1: he you know try that one with the uh, magnificent 7 see if you I think you'd have a hard time drawing the map and certainly I don't know yeah. that there are more than two interior shots for a town that is supposed to be complex and alive. Hmm. Some of with the architecture too, is we get repetition in the same way that, uh, you know, we get repetition with the spaces, but when we get introduced to characters, we see them doing something that is repetitive. We don't necessarily see them do it multiple times, but like Mm -hmm. when we started with seven, we made a, we were really excited to see the opening for Morgan Freeman and, you know, getting, he was really meticulous and putting everything on and where everything was set. Yep. And that's, it's, it was a fascinating way to introduce us to a character because just right off the bat, you know, that's a daily routine and it tells you a lot. And then that allows us to repeat spaces instead of character actions. Mm-hmm. I think he's, I think he's efficient in that manner.
0: Yeah. Well, that's it, he's just so beholden to character, which is something that is so uh, foreign in today's world of the reproduced blockbuster. Um, you know, s- say what you will about whatever remake happened this summer, but a lot of times characters aren't motivated by character. They're motivated by now they're motivated by joke or they're motivated by tagline or they're motivated by, uh, you know, whatever. That's one of the things I really honestly liked about Captain America. Civil war is that they really, I feel like tried to go with character on those. Although Tony Stark, eh, maybe not. There's a lot of baggage that they have to, it's, it's Maybe running it's with weights,
1: and they did a respectable job given the baggage that they came into
0: that movie with. That's true. But, um, but I think the thing that Fincher does is he allows characters to become predictable so that they can then become unpredictable. And that has impact on the audience, right? Because you're allowing us to... Just like we get familiar with the architecture, we get familiar with the character. And we see that I think it's one of the greatest, uh, greatest points in character development is when a character goes into a scenario and you say, this is how that character would handle this. Or I can't wait to see how this character handles this because I know that they're going to do it in a really fun and interesting way because I know the character. So many times we, now, nowadays we just get a bunch of plastered-up characters that are archetypes, and then you're like, oh, yeah, and then we could have them break archetype, and that's a funny thing. No, Fincher doesn't use archetypes. He just uses straight-up character. He puts the character in the scenario, and he allows us to get to know them like we get to know the spaces, and it becomes this comfortable, interesting thing, and then he's allowed to manipulate us from there. And that, I feel like, is what makes his movie so impactful and memorable over time in that you don't know it's a Fincher movie maybe, but you definitely know it was a good movie. Yeah, it was, I mean, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and that wasn't necessarily his writing, but
1: in his, uh, you know, his touch on the work, he did such a remarkable job of ele- relaying what Lisbeth is as a person that when we get to the end and she's doing this nice thing for Mikael, um, and you see him walking away with his uh, old girlfriend you know that she's going right back into her pattern because she tried to break it yeah. it did not work and mm-hmm. now you I, you don't have to have it spelled out for you because you watch it and the mo- you know where that momentum's going because you've seen it before yep.
0: Yeah, the character development's really strong here. Let's get into Fincherisms real
1: quick. Oh, here. love these Fincherisms.
0: So, uh but Benny, uh on the forums went through some Fincherisms. Here we go. Uh first of all, the way he portrays women should be noted. Uh they can be just as flawed, intelligent, sensible or evil as a man can be, not the typical Hollywood bride that can crush you with her luscious thighs <laughs> but still needs someone to save her. <laughs> uh absolutely um amy in my opinion is one of the best villains at least in the 21st century so far amy and gone girl yeah um terrifying jody, terrifying villain jody
1: foster at the end of panic room when mm-hmm. she subverts the villains and she's waiting for them you know she they come out and the lights are smashed that yep. was an awesome she will take care of this problem herself Yep. With a sledgehammer.
0: Absolutely. Um, uh, next Um we already went through the architecture one. Rain in fridges. Rain in fridges, of course. Heavy rain. It's always raining, even if it's in Los Angeles. And we're always going to see the inside of a character's refrigerator, which is great.
1: I love the fridge. It's just, it's another, it's like cracking open the brain and taking a peek in. And then you just mm-hmm. close it again.
0: Yeah um the next thing is uh says uh i think he's really smart about giving little key clues about his big twist movies tyler flashing in some of the frames before he's even introduced the different pens when amy is writing her diary during the first half of gone girl come to mind so uh he's gonna have twists but his twists make sense um and it's and this if you if you listen to the ball move network uh, you you're definitely a big fan of Aaron and one of the things that Aaron hates is the usual suspects because <laughs> yeah. there's a big twist at the end of that movie and there's literally nothing in the whole movie that hints at that twist at all so it's just a twist for twist's sake really um it's just a big kind of goofy twist at the end that you that the viewer had no no way of guessing beforehand uh fincher doesn't do that his twists do make sense um, and you never feel like they're a twist for twist's sake, yeah,
1: even with the game, he kept twisting, but it was it was relevant it was that that was the whole idea of of the game was to just never let you get a sense of get well, your grip, yeah, you never were supposed to get your grip and well he kept and at the
0: end of the yeah, and at the end of the game. You still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you the game's really, still you not. Know. The still twist don't is...
1: It's still twisting, so enjoy that, yeah, good luck. soft landing.
0: What other Fincherisms do we need to mention here, Lee, um, Lee?
1: Just the isolation of the characters. He picks... Yep. And we talked about a little bit with kind of the the existentialism, the nihilism of mm-hmm. uh, his. a lot of his work. He really likes marginalized, isolated characters who are outsiders and trying to... Understand or get in or change, uh, the, the, the masses, the, the normal, the, they're trying to change what is normal. Uh, yeah. and it was, it made for interesting characters every time. There's always something mm-hmm. relatable because I think everybody feels you, everybody can relate to that. Everybody has their moments of isolationism. Um, that's just kind of the way the world works and you don't feel that no. all the time, but because you have those moments, it makes every one of these characters has a moment where you can, you can join in
0: and be in their shoes. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, he definitely does that. Like all of his characters are in some way becoming more isolated. You have uh Brad Pitt's character who is moving to a new city with his wife in seven, uh, whereas Morgan Freeman's character is on the verge of retirement and losing his identity as a human being because that's all he's ever been as a cop. You have, uh, um, you know, in the game... Um, you the the main character is, is has everything but is still isolated in his ivory tower and has and has really nothing the social network. You have somebody who nobody likes, who's just an asshole. <laughs> and how does he become the guy who has five hundred million friends? In uh, Benjamin Button, you have a person who has a debilitating or not necessarily debilitating, but a unique medical ailment that nobody else in the world has ever had or ever will have again. That's super weird. And so he can't have friends as a child and, and, uh, the world kind of interprets him in different ways. Every single one of his movies, the main character is in some way isolated. And, and then we have to, we have to watch them work through that isolation. It's really interesting. Yeah,
1: it was, it was good. Also, uh, Mm -hmm. soundtrack, The Mm -hmm. soundtrack for all of these movies... And I've been on a kick ever since the uh, Every Frame of Painting went off on Marvel movie soundtracks. Um, Every one of these movies has a stellar soundtrack. And, you know, they vary. They certainly some that are better than others. Social Network, obviously, was an amazing soundtrack. Gone Girl was very good fight club. uh, There's a lot of... That that was the soundtrack I listened to for a very long time. Um, Hmm. And... That's just something you don't get with so with movies as much anymore. Yeah. I I don't know if it's a cost saving feature or what. Iconic, iconic soundtrack, yeah, iconic soundtrack. Yeah.
0: So well, and and for me, the big fincherism for me is that comfort level. So he makes us comfortable in in letting us uh, kind of ease into the architecture and understand uh, how where things are. Um, like, I mean, I just think about Gone Girl. Like, Gone Girl is in a movie you think about architecture, but you kind of understand the full layout of the McMansion. You know the full layout of Ben Affleck's sister's house. Um, it's just so amazing. And and you don't necessarily understand the full layout of, of um, uh, Doogie Hauser's house. But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, the architecture is really interesting. But the other thing that he does after he's lulled us into this comfort level with the characters, understanding the characters, understanding the architecture, it's that that cinematography that we mentioned, um where it is so warm and it really and he's not he doesn't shy away from dimness. Um and it really does mimic I think closest to what you actually see with the human eye. Uh, The other director that comes to mind with this is Terrence Malick. He does very similar stuff uh, in terms of of the seeing eye, but Terrence Malick's stuff is much more organic feeling and uses a lot of, like, steady cam and handheld shots, whereas David Fincher, everything is locked down, and everything is cinematography, cinematography I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to say that. But everything is, you know, set up. The The shots are meticulously shed up, set up and framed and they're locked down on a tripod. But he, the, the way that he uses light mimics what we see as human beings in everyday life, which lulls you into that comfort zone and allows you to explore the story in a much deeper way than I think a lot of other films do.
1: Yeah. Uh, focus, too. When we're talking about cinematography, what he tends to focus on, and this Just came up because I was thinking about, uh, with guns in the foreground. There were several shots throughout, um, that he just, where he puts the, uh, what's that called in camera terminology, where, you know, the plane of what is in focus Mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah, the depth of field. The depth of field. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's really very particular in where he wants that to be and what you are able to see, uh, very sharply.
0: And many times, just about every single one of his movies, he has a character... He has a shot that opens and the whole shot is blurry, and then he has a character walk into focus um, in the shot. Uh, it's it's something he uses time and time again, and it usually happens during a shot where uh, where kind of the tides have turned, or where, where a character who you thought was inconsequential is be- now suddenly becoming consequential, or when a character who uh was acting one way is stepping out of their comfort zone and uh and motivated to act a different way um w- the one that comes to mind for me is in the social network and he david fincher uses the walk into focus scene when uh what's his name andrew garfield's character closes the bank account at the bank oh yeah um, to the window yeah that scene starts boom completely blurry and then he walks into focus and he closes Facebook's account at the bank. That is a character turn moment when suddenly he has clarity as a character and he's acting upon that clarity. And this is something that David Fincher uses time and time again in his films. So, yeah. Uh let's let's move on cuz we're we're kind of running out of time here. Um let's let's get to our top 10s here. Let's do it. All right, I'm going to ask you to go first. All right. So, top 10 David Fincher movies ranked I'll, least favorite to most favorite. So first of all, just tell us your judging criteria, and then uh, go ahead and walk through your list. I
1: chose the most Fincher was what I was going for for ranking, which I think typically relates to what I enjoyed the most. Uh, but really, what is iconic Fincher? What is kind of the densest iconic Fincherisms? Um, number ten is naturally going to be Alien Three. Uh, I don't think that's a surprise anybody. Number nine, Benjamin Button ended up coming in very low for me. Uh, eight, yep. The Game. Seven, mm-hmm. Panic Room. Six, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And then we get to the top five, which is a real nightmare to piece together. Uh, I have Zodiac at five, Fight Club four, Gone Girl at three, Social Network at two, and I had to put seven at number one. Interesting.
0: All right. Well, uh I I did the off the shelf list. Oh. Um which to me is of all these movies are on the shelf, which do you grab first? Mm-hmm. Um we had the same bottom four. We just had a little bit of a different order. But I number 10 to Alien 3, number 9 The Game, number 8 Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So we just flip-flopped those and then number 7 Panic Room. So we were pretty on par with those ones. Mm-hmm. Number 6 for me is Gone Girl which you had at number three. Number five for me is Fight Club, which you had at number four, so those are pretty close. Number four for me is Seven, which you had at number one. Uh, Number three, The Social Network. Really? Number two, Zodiac. And then number one for me is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. What? Yeah. That movie blew me away. Like I, I told you... I was going into this, I'm like, Zodiac's his best movie. Yeah, and I assumed uh, that and- it was still the case. Yeah, so you- and I, I and we when, when we did the Zodiac podcast, I was like, dude, Zodiac, you would say that about his best film. Because Zodiac is still a great film and it's still my number two. But for some reason, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, this rewatch, is so strong and... In some ways, I feel like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is so indicative of the world we now live in, where long-form fictional entertainment is what people strive for, and that's why we watch TV shows, and really more people, I feel like, are invested in TV shows than are invested in films. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, God, TV shows have almost become a religion at this point. Like, have you heard the good word of Stranger Things? <laughs> Let me tell you, friend. Um, but for me, Zodia, or for me, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo kind of uh, touches on all those bases. It's a very affecting film. It has horrific, terrible, awful scenes in it, the way that Seven does. It has um, interesting characters. It has a twisting plot. I feel like the plot structure is so interesting with Stellan Skarsgard's Scar- character being such an evil person and yet not being the villain of the movie. Like, that is so <laughs> crazy to me. It just blows my fucking mind um and this rewatch it 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 just stuck with me the most uh of any of david fincher's films and that's why the girl with the dragon tattoo is my number one i had seven pretty low so why is seven your number one i have to put it at the top it's got mm-hmm. a lot of uh what
1: it's it's lasted so long mm-hmm. it when you talked when we went back through this you know if, if you had asked me at probably 21 maybe even like up to a couple of years ago, Fight Club would come in, I would oh, say yeah. higher than Super high. Seven, especially if it was the yeah. off the shelf test. Uh, cause yeah. that's a movie I could always plug in and just watch Edward Norton and, uh, Brad Pitt punch each other.
0: Yeah, uh, Fight Club is the, is the movie I've seen the most. Yeah, I think on, the
1: same, yeah. same here. But mm-hmm. Seven, the fact that people remember scenes that are not shown <laughs> is yeah. so crazy to me. I mean, yeah. that is, magic he is that is an illusion that he has created by doing not he's not in front of you making you think of these scenes he's not misdirecting you he has made a film you watched it and it was so powerful that it is projecting into it is incepting people Mm -hmm. who are watching this movie he didn't have to make inception he did inception uh and that to me is the most powerful. And I think that he hits (laughs) that he takes what he does in seven and he refines it over the course of the movies to follow. But seven coming off of, uh, alien three, right. Was right before it. I mean, he Mm -hmm. just, something about this movie is so powerful. And I think if I were to have to take one of these to show somebody else and say, this is David Fincher, I'd, I do seven every time.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'd show if I was trying to show somebody David Fincher. I don't think I'd show them girl with the dragon tattoo. I think I would probably show him Gone Girl. Honestly, I feel like Gone Girl is a pretty good summation of David Fincher. Because <laughs> um, I do uh, in that regard, I, f- I feel like Seven is an amazing movie, but I don't feel like Seven is the most Finchery Fincher movie.
1: It does have the least soft point. landing of any of them, and it, maybe it, that's it, part of the yeah. reason that I it's one that I would show to others is yeah. that you get to that I, ending and you're not, <laughs> and you're questioning the, uh it leaves you, there's a, the most to question, I think, in yeah. in his shooting of Kevin Spacey. Uh, mm. I think that that's a more interesting topic of discussion than Ben Affleck staying with Amy. That is of several I degrees more... Crazy <laughs> yeah. than shooting the man who murdered your wife, whether or not you yeah. do that. I yeah. think that's a great philosophical question that I enjoy picking up with people every now and again. So,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm looking on the forums here. Davy Mac uh, put his top ten. Also, it's just it's a, this is kind of the consensus here is Alien Three, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, the game, and Panic Room are the bottom yeah. four, and then the rest are just kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, um, it's really
1: just personal. I think there's a lot I, in I there. Mean, that's for
0: me, I, I think I'm an outlier here with "Grow with the Dragon" tattoo. Um, you had her. You had him at six. You had that at six. Davy had that at six as well. I, for some reason, that movie just kind of sticks with me, man. It's uh, it's a, like there's a whole like Nazi undertone in that movie. I just feel <laughs> like I feel like I just have not gotten. I feel like I've 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 seen like forty percent of that movie. Like I feel like I just I feel like there's so much that's hidden in that film that I need to go back and just kind of dissect all of the interviews that he has with people. The Dead Cat on the like there's just so many things in that movie that are that are layered um that I really want to pick apart. And also we we didn't mention this but I think we both had The Social Network in our top 3.
1: Yeah, it's funny that right? Fight Club kind of hovers in the mid if you take all three yep. Fight Club yep. never really breaks the top three, yeah. certainly. It kind of hovers in the middle, but everything else kind of revolves around it, which is
0: interesting. That is interesting, yeah. Huh. Anyway, okay, so that's our top ten. We'll post that on the forum so you can dissect us and uh, tear us apart. But we got some <laughs> business to get to, my friend, yeah. because we are through our Fincher run, and we are going to take a month off, so we will be back with more direct in November. Um, but until then... We got to figure out who our next direct director is going to be. We will be posting a forum post on uh, forums.baldmove.com uh, where you'll be able to go and vote on our next direct director. But I think we have to have a little bit of a conversation. Yeah. I on. mean, we've.
1: This is the hardest part of this entire podcast, is figuring out who we're going to dedicate, you know, another two and a half, three months to. It's. Yeah. It's a big commitment. It's somebody you want to enjoy watching all their films, preferably. Mm-hmm. Someday I might be willing to do a Zack Snyder uh, just out of sheer morbid <laughs> curiosity. I want to study and yeah. figure out what it is that bugs me about him. Um, yep. But, I mean, if you go through our forum, it's easily one of the most uh, the most responded to forum posts is always who's next in the director. Um, and yep. it's always... It's always great names. It's hard to narrow it down, you know?
0: Well, so we have people posting already. uh, Stanley Kubrick, Paul Thomas Anderson, David Lynch. Paul Thomas Anderson was in our last Mm -hmm. bunch. And I think this is interesting. Uh, (laughs) uh, Trippy says, why not a palate cleanser and do UA Bull or Michael Bay? That's not going to (laughs) happen.
1: Definitely not do a
0: Bull. I'm... I could pick a range of bay a time period yeah. maybe. Uh Davy Mack throws throws forward Adam McKay, which could be interesting. We could watch Anchorman and Anchorman too, but also the big Short. The big
1: short as
0: has influenced my economic outlook. <laughs> um I'm thinking so I'm thinking two different paths here and we've talked about one of them. One of them is uh go a little bit lighter and maybe a little bit um i don't want i don't want to name anybody but a little bit lighter and a little bit uh, maybe more nuanced in terms of like oh this isn't our tour director like go with somebody who is a little bit more of a popcorn flick guy kind of like tarantino mm-hmm. or kind of like what we did with um edgar wright del toro yeah, yeah and edgar wright Uh, so I guess the theme of this podcast I don't know I I, I think I do there's part of me that wants to do a little bit of a palate cleanser but also explore directors that I haven't watched a lot of their films Mm -hmm. Um, so we've talked about going that route and then the other route that I think is interesting is doing classic directors but a time period of their careers so doing directors like Kubrick but I don't want to do the whole Kubrick catalog I would want to do like the last 20 or whatever pick a time range that ends up with Anywhere from 8 to 10 movies, probably. Yeah, exactly. Like, basically, Kubrick's last 8 to 10 movies. Um, do, maybe do somebody like Spielberg, 1980 to ni- 95 or something. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, Jaws to Schindler's List or something like that. Um, Hitchcock, do something similar. Pick a time period for Hitchcock. John Ford, uh, pick a time period for John Ford and watch some awesome westerns. So, that we kind of have two routes here. One is to go a little bit lighter, a little bit of a palate cleanser thing. And I think most of the directors were looking at, there are directors who have directed all our films in the last 30 years or go a little bit more classic and, um, and pick a time period of a big feature, our tour director that everybody that that's a household name. And it has been a household name for uh, half a century or so. It's, I mean, that's
1: such a hard choice because th- I think yeah. the
0: art tour directors
1: are easy to, are easier to do over this longer time period. You know, we're looking at Fincher mm-hmm. over three months. Um, it makes it e- He has such strong relations between his films that every week when we yep. come back, it's easy to remember t- details from the previous week. Um, but you know, I'm curious to try a palate cleanser and maybe, you know, somebody that's yeah. not necessarily that as far up in their own head as, and I think <laughs> Edgar Wright, Del Toro and, Quentin Tarantino are our tours in their very specific way. And I think some of the people we've Mm -hmm. talked about, I wouldn't even, I would not put them at all in the art tour realm. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking palate cleanser.
0: I'm leaning palate cleanser, but I'd like to get, uh, just, um, just the, the the pulse of the audience. So go to forums.ballmove.com, Go to the direct category on the right side of the page, and there is a the next direct director forum post. You can post there and let us know what you think, or just give us some directors that you think we should cover. Um, and uh, and there was a question also. There was a question also on the forums. Uh, as new movies come out by directors that we have covered, we will cover those yeah, we'll add those in so when we'll uh, fincher in.
1: does world war z2 which is been yeah. sitting at the top of his rumored director Ugh. credits Ugh. but it's fincher i for whatever nope. reason like that gets me nope. like okay all right nope.
0: Nope. <laughs> i'm not excited about that um but yes and i think that what we're gonna do is if jim and aaron are covering it for bald movies Uh, for the first run, then we'll just cover it the week after it comes out. So there is a movie, a big movie coming out next year by a big director that I think we're going to cover. Absolutely. Spoiler alert. And so uh, we're going to start watching his movies in May so that we can watch his movie that comes out in July. And that is our little clue quest for you, the (laughs) listeners, so you can go find out who we're talking about. All right. Well, uh, gosh, I was going to talk for a half an hour on Fincher and we talked for an hour. So... Uh, I think it's time to call it a night. I think it's time for the soft uh, landing. How are we going to exit? So <laughs> please keep in touch. Uh, forums.baldmove.com or uh, you can email us podcast at com. and until next time, folks, we'll see you in November. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.